Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. My essay this week is called The Last Sentence of the Bible, Grace to All, and is based upon the lectionary readings for Sunday, May the 20th, 2007. In church a few weeks ago, our pastor related the story of a woman in Atlanta who had enrolled in a psychology program at a local university. One class assignment required her to identify the sort of person that she most feared, and then to go and meet just such a person. This Christian woman admitted that she most feared gay people, and so, much to her credit, she befriended some gays. The fears of the rest of her class colleagues were even more interesting. A full 40% of the students in her class said that the people they most feared were Christians. Do these students rightly fear Christians? Are Christians scary people? The purpose of the class exercise seemed to be to show students how easily we stereotype each other without even knowing each other, and how we can dispel those fears by meeting people whom we find strange. So maybe Christians aren't as bad as the press would seem to indicate. I guess there's some truth in that, but to hide behind that fig leaf lets us off the hook way too easily. At the end of the film Jesus Camp from the year 2006, I was so disheartened that I just sat in my seat. A woman exiting down the aisle of the theater stopped at my chair and asked, was that a true story? When I told her that it was a documentary, she exclaimed, that's unbelievable. The film Jesus Camp features the Pentecostal children's minister, Becky Fisher of Missouri and the summer camp that she runs in North Dakota. I physically squirmed in my seat watching this film of believers who distort the gospel with different litmus tests. Young Earth, Intelligent Design, Abortion, Global Warming, Harry Potter, Homeschooling, and Fidelity to George Bush. Now that's something scary. I also kept mulling over the observation of the New Testament scholar Marcus Borg of Oregon State University. In a footnote to his book, The Heart of Christianity, Borg says that when he asks his unchurched university students to write a short essay about their impressions of Christianity, quote, they consistently use five adjectives. Christians are literalistic, anti-intellectual, self-righteous, judgmental, and bigoted. End quote. That's also scary. A few weeks later, another one of our pastors suggested that Christians have a so-called branding problem. Kim observed how companies go to great lengths to brand themselves in ways that communicate not just a catchy slogan or a superficial tagline, but their core identity, what they most want the public to think of when they hear their name. Good branding is powerful. Just think of all the corporate jingles that you can't get out of your head, even if you tried. 
Kim then proposed an interesting thought experiment. Quote, what do you think the average person on the street, in the grocery store, at the gas station would come up with if we went around and asked them to sum up in just a few words what the Christian church was all about? In many cases, our branding tagline, for the most part, would be something like, we're right, you're wrong. Let us correct your behavior. Give us your money for something irrelevant to your life. Withdraw from normalcy and join our weird little subculture. Welcome to worship and let us tell you how to vote. Whether we like it or not, we've been branded in these ways by a culture that for the most part sees the church primarily outside of the mainstream of current life." End quote. When you think about it, the Bible is actually a mini-library of 66 books, written mainly in Hebrew and Greek by about 40 authors across more than a thousand years. It's long, too. My Bible is 1,635 pages. It has many plot twists and is rooted in ancient cultural settings that are foreign to us today. But could we brand the Bible story? What would be its singular tagline? Could we reduce its myriad complexities to an essential substance that clarifies and enlightens rather than reduces and oversimplifies? Yes, we can. And in fact, Interestingly enough, the very last sentence of the Bible does exactly that. We read in Revelation chapter 22, verse 21, The grace of the Lord Jesus be with all. That's the Bible's branding, and it ought to be our branding too. Not a narrow political ideology, whether left or right. Not a specious theory rooted in junk science not judgmentalism of others that is eager to exclude people unlike ourselves. We could even reduce that branding from one sentence to one word. And that one word, of course, would be grace. Some variants in the original Greek New Testament have a different reading for Revelation 22, verse 21. It's a reading that narrows the appeal for God's grace to, quote, God's people, end quote, as the NIV puts it, or the saints, according to the new RSV. But as Pastor Rob Bell in Michigan has observed, the gospel is good news, especially to those who don't believe it. So I like the reading of the New American Standard Bible, which retains the expansive nature of God's grace by translating the Greek in a strictly literal, even if awkward way, the grace of the Lord Jesus be with all. Even Psalm 97 in the readings for this week has as its purview all the earth, verses 1, 5, and 9, the world, 97, 4, and all the peoples, 97, 6, which is rather remarkable when you think about it for an ancient liturgical text that's written for what 97 verse 8 calls the villages of Judah. God's lavish favor, without conditions or limits, 
for all people. That's our branding. In a similar branding exercise, the Apostle Paul also pushes the parameters of divine grace not only beyond the saints, but even beyond humanity. Paul says that God was in Christ reconciling the entire creation, the whole cosmos, to himself. Romans 8, 2, and 2 Corinthians 5, 19. The God whom Jesus revealed isn't mean or scary. And if we reflect his if we reflect his image, people need not fear his followers. Rather, said Jesus, he's the sort of God who throws a party for a kid who wasted the family fortune, who refuses to condemn a woman caught in the act of adultery, who breaks taboos of ethnicity and gender to encourage a woman who had been married five times, who welcomes a criminal into his kingdom as the man gasps for breath while being executed, and who embraces his closest disciples even though they abandoned him and denied ever knowing him. And so the last page of the Bible invites everyone with these welcoming words. Let him who hears say, come. Whoever is thirsty, let him come. And whoever wishes, let him take the free gift of the water of life. Revelation 22, verse 17. And now for further reflection. In your own experience, do people fear Christians? And if so, why? Do you think their fears are justified? Can you think of Christians who break this stereotype and who are graceful, gracious, and welcoming to all? Number three. Consider extending grace not only to others, but to your own self. And consider the statement by Pastor Donald McCullough. Grace tells us that we are accepted just as we are. We may not be the kind of people we want to be. We may be a long way from our goals. We may have more failures than achievements but we are nonetheless accepted by God, held in his hands. Such is his promise to us in Christ Jesus, a promise we can trust. And then finally, consider the book by Philip Yancey, What's So Amazing About Grace? For books this week, I review Ed Vistour's with David Roberts. The title, No Shortcuts to the Top, Climbing the World's 14 Highest Peaks, New York, Broadway Books, 2006, 358 pages. There are 14 mountain peaks in the world that tower to 8,000 meters, 26,247 feet. And when Ed Vistours finally conquered Annapurna, a peak on which one climber dies for every two who try, he joined an elite group of five people who have accomplished that feat without using supplemental oxygen. 
He's the only American to have done so. It took 18 years and 30 expedition to the 8,000ers. On 10 trips, he turned back short of the summit, once when he was only 100 feet away, exercising extraordinary willpower to follow what he calls his deepest article of faith, that, quote, getting to the top is optional, getting down is mandatory. Not bad for a man who, in 1992, at the age of 33, had quit his practice as a veterinarian, was living in a windowless basement apartment, had $25,000 of school debt, and was banging nails as a construction worker to make ends meet. No Shortcuts to the Top is a fun read, because it's about more than mountain climbing, which, of course, almost none of his readers will ever attempt. But everyone has their personal Annapurna, as he says in the final pages of the book, whether battling cancer or conquering a fear. Failure, perseverance, passion, patience, risk management, teamwork, self-sacrifice for others, endurance, and death itself are all life lessons that easily emerge from Vistour's book. His chapter on the 1996 disasters on Mount Everest when a dozen people died, including world-class mountaineers Scott Fisher and Rob Hall, adds his own personal perspective to John Krakauer's book, Into Thin Air. In the last few pages, Vistours reflects upon whether his pursuit was selfish, adventure addiction, growing older and realizing he can't climb like he could 20 years ago, feeling let down after such a remarkable achievement, and how climbing has impacted his marriage. For movie versions, see the IMAX film Everest, which, by the way, was the highest grossing IMAX movie ever made or in addition, the documentary film Everest, The Death Zone. Edvis Durs, No Shortcuts to the Top, Climbing the World's 14 Highest Peaks. For film this week, I review an Australian film called Alexandra's Project from the year 2003. Steve's birthday started well enough, while still in bed, his kids gave him hugs and high fives. At work, his colleagues had a cake with candles and his boss gave him a promotion. And his wife, Alexandra, promised him a surprise in the evening. And some surprise it was. The film opens with a camera panning through the winding road of a sterile suburb and soft, discordant music. The very first sentence of the film belongs to Alexandria, as she is alone in the bathroom looking at herself in the mirror. I'm so sorry, Steve. And then she spits into the mirror. No, I am not sorry. No one should ever be sorry to stand up for their own self. The rest of the film then takes place in the living room as Steve watches the surprise birthday tape that Alexandra made before she left him. Her powerfully manipulative monologue to Steve takes him on a roller coaster of emotions straight to hell. Humor, disbelief, regret, sadness, pity, anger, rage, and finally despair. 
You didn't marry me, she tells Steve. You married my body. And so she makes it clear just how a marriage devoid of affection, intimacy, and mutual respect had made her feel. Alexandra's Project is a film that's hard to watch because it has no nuance whatsoever. Alexandra is a deeply angry and cruel woman. But if what she says about Steve is true, you empathize with her anyway. Alexandra's Project from the year 2003, a film from Australia. And then finally for poetry, a very short poem by Sylvia Plath. Sylvia Plath lived from 1932 to 1963. And her poem is called A Better Resurrection and reflects Sylvia Plath's deep struggle with horrible depression. A Better Resurrection by Sylvia Plath. I have no wit, I have no words, no tears. My heart within me, like a stone, is numb too much for hopes or fears. Look right, look left. I dwell alone. A lift my eyes, but dimmed with grief, no everlasting hills I see. My life is like the falling leaf. O oh, Jesus, quicken me. Sylvia Plath, A Better Resurrection. Thank you for joining journeywithjesus.net for Sunday, May the 20th. 2007. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.